Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You're listening to Linux in the Ham Shack. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello everybody and welcome to the most terrific amateur radio podcast on the internet. This is episode number 277 of that very podcast, and the usual cast of characters is all here tonight. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD. All right, so we're just going to jump right in. I want to take a couple of seconds just to mention Hamvention 2019. We're down to seven weeks before the show. It's going to run from March, or sorry, May 17th through the 19th, and uh, we'll be there. We're going to, of course, do our little... Uh, eyeball qso party on the 15th before that happens and we have our hamvention 2019 campaign running right now i don't want to talk about it too much but if you can donate please do if you can't please share even if you can donate please share sharing helps every donation helps even if it's as little as five dollars we really appreciate it we're almost halfway there and i'm not going to say too much more about it except to say that uh, url.bcts.info slash hvc2019 is where you go uh, to make that donation. And we hope to see everybody in Xenia. So there's that. Mm-hmm. All right. Just wanted to get there mm-hmm. out in the front, get out of the way, and we move on. So this is our short topic episode, episode number 277. So the first thing we're going to talk about is some short topics in amateur radio. And since I did all the talking up till now, I'm going to let Bill read this first story. Of course, uh, the, <laughs> the ISRO. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, there you go. Uh, the ISRO to launch EmiSat on April first with an amateur radio payload. This has got to be a New Year's or what is a uh, April Fool's joke or something like that. Um, India will soon launch an electronic intelligence satellite for the Defense Research Development Organization (DRDO). For the first time, it will also demonstrate new technologies like three different orbits with a new variant of the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, the PSLV. We've got lots of acronyms here. Uh, rocket. Uh, EMISAT is a satellite based on ISRO's India Mini Satellite 2 IMS-2 bus platform. The satellite is intended for an electromagnetic spectrum measurement and will have three experimental payloads on board. One, an automatic uh, identification system and AIS from ISRO. <laughs> yeah, full of acronyms. <laughs> Love it. For, yeah, for maritime satellite applications capturing messages transmitted from ships. Uh, two, an automatic packet repeating system, APRS, from AMSAT, the uh, Radio Amateur Satellite Corporation, uh, India, to assist amateur radio operators in tracking and monitoring position data. And three, an advanced retarding potential analyzer for ionospheric studies, Eris, <laughs> from uh, India, Indian Institute of Space Science and Technology, uh, the IIST. Why not throw one more in there? 
for the structural and comp- compositional studies of the ionosphere. And that came from the onion. Was, no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeez, a piece. Yeah, that came to us from uh, India today. Grats on a new source. <laughs> I do try and find things from different places than, you know, the Southgate Amateur Radio Club, because that's pretty much where we get half of what we talk about. Um, maybe we should just have somebody from Southgate just come on the show and read like their website yeah. <laughs> would say give us, us the Southgate time. podcast. This is the Southgate ARC <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no. we'll give them some ideas, right? <laughs> do you try and keep things fresh? I do have a couple of new sources in here tonight, actually. So uh, this next one is really short, sweet, and to the point. So Cheryl, you want to pick up the second story? Sure. So the 2018 ARRL DXCC yearbook is now available for viewing and downloading. The yearbook includes the 2018 annual list, as well as the... Uh, I think that's 2018. Yep. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually actually a direct copy from the ARRL. That seven exists in this post. I didn't put that in there. (laughs) As well as the 2018 Clinton B. DeSoto Challenge top scores. DXCC is Amateur Radio's premier award that hands can earn by confirming on-the-air contacts with 100 countries. You can begin with the basic DXCC award and work your way up to the DXCC honor roll. Why do I feel like that if we looked back at this post from 2017, it would be a verbatim copy probably of yeah. that announcement yeah and then somebody just screwed up <laughs> because when instead changing of deleting dates. the seven they just threw an eight in mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah but anyway yeah that story came from the ARRL so and if you want to see the uh, misprint you can go check it out there <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it looks like it's a complete carbon copy of last year's post yeah, last year. <laughs> <laughs> was there a six in last year's post so, yeah, yeah. No, they, they got it right last year they, it definitely looks like they got it right last year but it is exactly the same text yeah <laughs> Yeah, this year it says as well as the 20187 Clinton DeSoto Challenge. <laughs> so, yeah, somebody uh, proofreading. Proofreading is your friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. So, check that out. We'll have a little bit more talk about DXCC later on. Well, actually, in the next episode, we'll talk about DXCC a little bit more. So, stay tuned for that if you're interested in DXCC. All right. So, the next story we have in our amateur radio topics for tonight is Puerto Rico lures tech devs as hurricane season looms. Uh, wish I had some like ominous music to play in the background here, but <laughs> nice. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you guys can make like uh, ominous, like weird, like howling noises and like very yeah. creepy things. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the dark and isolating days after Hurricane Maria, people across Puerto Rico invented new ways to communicate with television. Uh, television, yeah, with telephone service, probably television too. Yeah. Uh, blown away by the Category Four hurricane, the governor took to the only radio station still operating and asked listeners to tell the mayors of all seventy-eight municipalities to drive to the capital and update authorities about their needs in person. Access to devastated areas was impossible, and police, firefighters, and emergency responders were unable to talk to each other for days. Well, the biggest crisis after Maria was communication, said Nazario Lugo, president of Puerto Rico's Association of Emergency Managers. Uh, he says that unleashed an endless number of problems. Now, several groups of young tech developers are trying to prevent that from happening the next time a major disaster strikes. Uh, they're roving Puerto Rico with laptops, transmitters, and drones. 
to test new systems that could help survivors communicate with authorities and speed up response times to minimize the number of deaths. Other tech companies have jumped at the opportunity to provide connectivity in the storm's aftermath, including Google, which obtained an experimental license from the U.S. Federal Communications Commission to provide emergency cellular service through Loon Balloons. The project helped connect more than 200,000 people and began winding down in March 2018. Lugo also stressed that authorities should allow regular citizens and amateur radio operators to participate in the new experimental systems. Quote, communication should not be restricted, he said, adding that the government needs to embrace new technology. He says, we're still far behind. There you go. And that story is a lot longer. So if you want to read about some of the systems that are actually entertaining down there, which include drones and uh, mesh networks and a bunch of other technologies, uh, give that a read. And that actually came from the Denver Post. That's interesting. Source. Yeah. So I, what was the connection to tie it into the Denver Post? Was uh, one of the communication companies uh, out of, out of uh, Colorado? Yeah. I don't know. I really don't because, I, like I said, I cut a whole lot of that story out. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of interesting to see the connection there. Yeah, I'm not sure that why that was reported in the Denver Post because I didn't see it mentioned anywhere else. So obviously there is some link to Denver. What it is, I couldn't tell you. It's native advertising. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's cool. I mean, Puerto Rico is embracing new technology to deal with disaster recovery and MCOM. So always good to hear about that. So that is all for our amateur radio topics. Well, at least our solely amateur radio topics for the evening. And we're going to move on to open source. And Bill is going to tell you about a really, really old Microsoft application called the calculator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Microsoft calculator benefits from open source. Go figure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Microsoft put, uh, their calculator out on uh, GitHub as an open source project. Um, sure they took care of that the right way. And uh, this is the same calculator you get if you're in Windows 10 and you just hit start run and type in calc and magically there's your, your calculator that you enjoy so much. Uh, because no, none of us, you know, actually use our phones for calculators, even though there's one built into that too. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was noticing there's a lot of pull requests already hitting the uh, calculator uh, uh, GitHub repo that Microsoft released. Uh, one interesting issue that came in was adding the ability to have graphing capabilities built into the application, which is also the top requested feature in uh, their feedback hub. Uh, some of the details in the proposal for the uh, graphing bit is... Uh, the proposal is, uh, sorry, the proposal <laughs> to empower students to learn mathematics by improving conceptual understanding and attitudes towards math by adding graphing support to Windows Calculator, targeting grades 8 through 12 and teachers in math and physics. With Graphing Calculator, we can improve the learning outcomes of students by increasing engagement and visualization of math equations. Now, the goals of the project are to provide the great baseline graphing calculator experience in Windows Calculator. Uh, support all the U.S. Common Core math curriculum, including the ability to build and interpret functions, uh, understand linear, quadratic, and exponential models, trigonomic fun functions, and reason with equations and inequalities. And I saw other comments on this uh, when people ran stories about it, uh, about uh, how expensive the graphing calculators are getting, and most people are using the computers anyway. And since they're on the computer, why not have all that already built into the basic calculator that is uh, already delivered with the with Microsoft, um, you know, Windows. So, uh, so this is kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting addition that they're going to kind of strap onto that, and hopefully, we'll get merged into the project, and you could see it in a future Patch Tuesday. So, uh, <laughs> he's take, strap on. 
Anyway, so that was over on GitHub, and there's there's a ton of uh, other uh, uh, merge requests or, or pull requests and stuff like that in there. So uh, take a look at the issue list and and everything else. It's it's quite interesting, actually. All right, very cool. So you can run an open source version of Calculator. Excellent. Which is going to have lots of new cool features, and it's going to be better and bigger than ever before because open source. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Did did you like parse any of these stories so they're actually readable? Um, I just copied and pasted that one. The next one. The next one. Okay. Well, I'll I'll re- I'll do the next one then, and you'll have to do the one after that because I see that it's uh, oh, just a bullet list. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a flash. <laughs> it's a flash. All right. So flash it. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, <laughs> all, all right, right you next- too. <laughs> <laughs> He's All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have somebody new in the chat room too. Last time for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, the New York Times releases open source tool called Library. That's a bad name for an open source tool, honestly, because <laughs> library yeah. lib, lib library, lib, lib, <laughs> lib, lib, lib. <laughs> uh, library is a wiki at heart, but it uses the familiar Google Docs as its backend and editing interface, easing maintenance for a wide population of users. Uh, in parens and quotes, we want to meet people where they already were rather than trying to teach them in something entirely new. Uh, when you connect library to a shared folder or team drive, it will traverse the documents in the folders and create your site content. Documents in library are searchable, taggable, and can be grouped by desks or categories. Uh, to add a page to library, you simply create a new Google Doc or move an existing document into the folder or team drive that powers library. Existing pages feature a convenient link that enables quick access to the Google Docs interface for any particular document, and editing the Google Doc makes changes to the page in library. So. Is this something that just uses Google Docs as the back end and you can run it on your own server? Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So basically that's, that's the interface, the editing interface, instead of like throwing in, uh, you know, whatever editor, you know, like CK editor or any one of those little teeny editor, tiny MCE or, you know, a zillion little editors, it actually opens it up in the, into Google Docs. Um, and I'm assuming if you had Teams, it would open it up in Teams as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, it looks kind of interesting. I kind of dug through some of it just to kind of get the gist of it. Uh, I picked it up off of a Reddit post uh, where it was mentioned, and then I, I kind of dug in from there. And, of course, uh, some of the Redditors were complaining that it's like, well, it's it's open source, but it's you know using a proprietary you know editing interface or whatever, <laughs> you know, using Google or whatever. So uh, there's some, you know, some naysayers in there, but they have uh, quick and easy instructions to, uh, to uh, launch it up on uh, Docker or Heroku, so uh, you can get the app running pretty instantly, so you can try it and play it out. And they have a demo app there, too, as well on uh, Heroku that you can play around with. So does Google Docs have to be the back end for this? I, I don't think so. I think it can also use uh, Teams, which I guess is the Microsoft thing. Okay, so two proprietary back ends for an open source front end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, sure. So it's sort of open source. <laughs> Well, <laughs> part of it is, yeah, certainly. yeah, yeah. So it, it's legit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another another wiki, basically, right. of, of of a sort. Uh, with a uh, you know all the other hard work is is taken away from the uh, the abstracted documents. So 
it's kind of an interesting way to, to do it since all the wiki is is documents anyway. Right. Okay. Well, it's interesting if somebody needs that kind of functionality, I suppose. So YAFW or let's see, what was it? Be Y A yeah, Y A F W yet another afternoon wiki. Um (laughs) so anyway, now that since you did another cut and paste on this next story, you get to read it. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not really a story, this is a flash topic. Uh this is the GNU Nano uh, 4.0 is released, uh, Thy Rope of Sands. I don't know why they have to give it a fancy name or whatever, but anyway. So, uh, yeah, Nano, uh, a lot of people use Nano. It's kind of... Uh, Sucky. It's, yeah, it's kind of like what just the editor portion of Emacs, right, or something like that. <laughs> Very light w- without editor. Without, like, any of the functionality. I, yeah, I just, without any of the functionality, yeah. Right. I think, you can, I think you can throw a lot of things at this now. I mean, Nano's grown up quite a bit over the years. And uh, it, it can be a, a very decent editor if you like that kind of editor style in a terminal. Um, but anyway, uh, the, a couple of big points that uh, were made in this uh, particular release was the over long line is no longer automatically hard wrapped. So this is when your text exceeds the width of your terminal and it just automatically thinks that you need to have that wrapped. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, a lot of people don't like that. And they finally got that to go away. A bunch of other just random features here, and you can take a look at the show notes for the rest of them. But uh, if uh, that was the one thing holding you back from using a crappy editor, I mean, I'm sorry, using uh, Nano as your editor, uh, (laughs) that's been solved. So now you can go ahead and use that and do all your control X, S, and all other stuff and whatever. (laughs) So Uh, so obviously Bill's going to be taken out by the Nano dev team. So yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not making any friends over there. Nano, no, I'm I'm an old you know VI Vim guy, so that's it. (laughs) Yes, me too. You know, text editors start holy wars, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> hey, I've used Nano many times, so I'm not going to complain about it. <laughs> I just don't know how to boot into Emacs. I just I can't figure out how to launch that OS on my terminal. I I can actually start up Emacs. I just can't figure out what to do with it once it's running. That's that's the biggest problem I have with it. <laughs> yeah, it's just too powerful for my little brain. <laughs> I have seen people do some pretty spectacular things with Emacs, but honestly, I kind of get the feeling that if you didn't start with Emacs and you didn't kind of learn from the ground up, it's kind of like when you're a child, you can easily pick up other languages. And I'm talking about spoken languages, not computer languages. Right. They're, they're much easier to learn when you're new and your brain is freshly formed and all that kind of thing. And if you started with one thing and then you learned all the things about that, then switching over to something else, no matter how powerful it is, is basically just impossible. So, you know, for all those people who grew up with Emacs, good on you, I guess. I'm just yeah. going to use Vi like forever. So, because <laughs> <laughs> it always works. <laughs> it, it does always work. That's true. All right. Very good. So, check out some of the new features in Nano. I, one thing I wish you could do is like, you know, how when a uh, distribution has an installation procedure and it has little screens about, how you want to do some minor customizations of your system right off the top. Mm-hmm. I wish you could choose your editor because for example, Debian and I presume Ubuntu and all the others default to nano. Yeah. Um, so it would be nice if you could say, no, I would prefer to use Emacs or I would prefer to use Vi or, you know, whatever right off the top. So that I wouldn't have to go through that extra little step of getting rid of the text editor. I'm never going to use and put on the one I am going to use. <sighs> oh, well, Right. Uh oh. Right. In the chat room, Emacs for the win. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. 
Ted says Emacs stands for eight megs and constantly swapping. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> Escape mid All alt right. control shift. Oh, there you go. I'm going to see if I can fire up this application that I have running on my computer oh my on God. my Mac. Oh I know my this could be bad, but it would help me out with the next topic. So let me, let me do this real quick. And if it doesn't work, I'll just go from what little memory I have of what I've done today. Uh, let's see what I got. Uh, dev. I should do it with a French accent because it is developed by a uh, Canadian Frenchman, I believe. Um, Alarm jeté. Isn't jeté like a dance move or yeah, something? Probably, yeah. Machete. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and it's from Finnish hams. <laughs> oh, I know. Thound well, Finnish. Think- Never mind. <laughs> What's that? I was like, I was reading their their news <laughs> thing on the front. It said, now in Finnish. Oh, wait. No, it's not Finnish. It's just they now have Finnish support. Okay, the biggest problem is I don't remember if I actually have X-Quartz running on uh, my Mac. Well, I guess we should but, just mention the topic here. But, but it, to it appears it. I do. Yes, we, sh- we should mention the topic. That is probably a good idea since I've been talking about it for two minutes without anyone knowing what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, what I am talking about is something I learned about at the Ors Ham Fest over the past weekend, and that is JT Alert. Now, JT Alert is an application that interfaces with the UDP backend that comes off of WSJTX, and it's supposed to assist you as a supplementary application in keeping track of your contacts, uh, your DXCC, your WAS, uh, contesting, and stuff like that. Anything you're doing with WSJTX, including JT9, JT65, FT8, so forth. Isn't it Windows? It is Windows, which is why we're going to talk about two different applications. <sighs> yeah, I used I used uh, JT Alert a lot, uh, and its integration with the logbook. I think at the time I was using the DX Keeper as my logbook, and it worked really well. It was it was kind of nice because it could sync up with the log. It could see what you had in there, so it would take care of all your dupes and everything else for you. So you wouldn't work somebody again, or you know, let's say you've worked them before for that band. It's a great little add-on application and uh, has some utilities that allow you to kind of it'll 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 snug up next to the window it'll snap to the window of uh, WSJTX and uh, plays plays nicely along with it and uh, I guess you found the the Linux version counterpart although you I did although there, you probably is... run that JT alert uh, with Wine I would have supposed there's not much not much interface to do networking on the .NET four seven two. Right, you just have to have a, a connection uh, on the loopback on your machine in order to be able to connect to it, which should be native in Wine anyway, so it should probably work. But uh, someone has written a Linux version of it. I did find some information indicating that the the true JT Alert has a Linux version in progress, but it's not currently available, and there's no code for it anywhere or anything that I could find. So someone else wrote a sister application to JT Alert called Alarm Jete. <laughs> Jete? 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 Something like that. Anyway, I'm assuming because of the extra E that it is French. Um, it, this is actually hosted on SourceForge where the files are, but there's a website for it as well. Um, I actually downloaded this version from SourceForge so I could run it natively alongside my WSJTX installation. The the application is written in Pascal, and it works, although I had to do 
some tweaking to get it to work on my system. Now, the version that's hosted on SourceForge says it is uh, usable with Ubuntu 14.04. Now, as we know, Ubuntu 14.04 is rather old at this point. However, most of what it's built on is actually still in more recent Ubuntu systems. And I'm actually not even using Ubuntu at all. I'm using Debian 10 on my shack box. So what I had to do was I had to download two older libraries uh, from the package repositories, extract those, and just copy the older versions into slash user slash lib and do an LD config so that they got registered into the library system. And then it started up and ran fine. And Debian 10, of course, is much newer than Ubuntu 14.04, but it can be made to run. Now, let's see if I can remember what those two libraries were. Uh, they were like lib, let's see, it was lib JavaScript GTK and lib GTK widgets or something like that. I could probably figure it out. I will put it in the show notes to be sure, just uh, so everyone has an information. And I'll even include a step-by-step guide on how to actually download those devs and extract the necessary library, you know, the .so files. Um, So if you want to run this on a newer system, you can. If you don't have an Ubuntu, that uh, will support these older versions of those libraries. The download is Uh, pre-compiled, eh? It is. But it's pre-compiled to include... Uh, shared libraries that were available on Ubuntu 14.04. So if those libraries are not on your machine, it will not run. Well, I can tell you it runs just fine here <laughs> with nothing. Okay. Nothing extra. So if you have our latest 18.04.1 build or whatever, it, it'll just run. Okay. So yours must have those particular libraries still installed. Um, and like I said, those uh, on my machine, there were newer versions of those libraries installed, so it didn't it didn't link to them directly, so I just added the older ones, and it worked fine. Okay, so you're actually looking at the interface, right? So you can yeah. you can correct me if I get something wrong. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. of course. Absolutely. I'll be happy to do that. <laughs> just what I love to do. <laughs> actually, I might I might let you just go ahead and talk about it. But anyway, uh, so what this does is it runs alongside WSJTX. It communicates via UDP socket on the back end on the loopback, and what it does is when um, information comes in through WSJTX, like you see CQs or conversations going in uh, FD8 or JS9 mode or whatever mode you happen to be in, uh, JT9, sorry, um, then it will uh, initially show you a dashboard of information, um, which you can refine to show just conversations that you're a part of and your own call sign so it can filter out things that you're not necessarily interested in. And that little dashboard gives you lots of information, like whether those call signs are registered in logbook of the world or eqsl whether you've worked them before on your particular band and mode um and things along those lines so that gives you that information right up front uh there is some minor configuration you need to do right at the start to get this to work uh basically that involves entering your call sign and your grid square uh there's a drop down in the main thing for settings um so once you've done that, that's all you have to do, and it will start working. I did find a couple of weird things about it. For example, it's supposed to be logging to a SQLite database, which is in the uh, a subdirectory of the main application. Mine did not seem to log. 
I'm not really sure why, but it wasn't keeping track of anything. And that's kind of the whole point of this thing is it keeps track of all the communicate. <coughs> it keeps track of all the communications that go through your WSJTX. So even if you're not focusing on your WSJTX window, it's still logging all of the information that comes through uh, into a SQLite database. And if you actually do QSOs, it keeps that in a separate database, and it also tracks that database. It checks your DXCC. It checks your WAS. It uh, lets you know when you've worked a station. It lets you know when you've achieved awards. It also has windows, sub-windows, that show you uh, information about calling stations. It interfaces with HamQTH, so you can actually do lookups. Um, of stations that you're monitoring through WSJTX. Um, it gives you a total box, so you can see how many stations you worked on a particular band and mode for, say, a particular state or a particular DXCC entity. Uh, it also has a couple of different um, DX cluster connections. Um, I forget what they are, but Bill can tell me. Yeah, it's uh, ham spots is uh, the one. And the other cluster is probably the HamQTH one. I can't tell. It, it's sort of built into the client. And HamSpots requires a username and login yeah. uh, in order to function properly. And so does the link to the uh, QRZ information out of HamQTH. You have to have that information. You have to enter into uh, Alarm JT. Oh, JT. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it just it basically just helps you manage your WSJTX communications. It keeps track of all the information, makes it easier uh, to focus on keeping that information sorted and analyzed because especially if you're doing FT8, some of those QSOs can happen very quickly and you have uh, it, it makes it much easier to catalog and, and keep things up to date and uh, puts, puts information in a consolidated format right in front of you so it's easier to keep track of. And uh, like I said, I it wasn't actually working for me because I locked several contacts on FT8 today, but it wasn't showing up in Alarm Jeté, uh, but it was showing up inside of WSJTX. So I'm not sure what I was doing wrong, <laughs> but um, I'm sure the problem is me, not the application. Yeah, I remember using this before. Um, I probably haven't used it in a while. I'll have to, ch- I'll have to check it out. But it allows you to do other stuff like uh, also filtering. So instead of having to look at your received window and your WSJTX and kind of peel through all that information, you can actually filter it down so it only shows like CQ. So you know you can respond to those quickly or your your own call if someone's actually calling you, even though those show up as red in WSJTX anyway, if you haven't really messed with those that configuration. So uh, it, it is a kind of useful tool if you're kind of if you're kind of searching for contacts and you know, maybe it's you know busy band like FT8 is, and you know the zillion things come every time you see a decode. It's sometimes nice to have something that filters that stuff down to uh, stuff that's more meaningful for uh, making contacts. Uh, Ted in the chat room says WSJTX writes dot uh, WSJTX slash decoded dot text into your home directory and has all of the call signs decoded in there that it ever sees. And then, of course, you can uh, manipulate that in whatever way you want to. You can grep it or do something if you want to see stuff that you're interested yeah. in in a, in a more manual sort of way. But um, I do I do think that Alarm JT, JT is something that I'll probably use because I like the way it interfaces. And I like the fact that it puts the information right in front of you without having to do extra steps. Yeah, I think the, so. the 
problem I had with it was that it didn't interface with the logging application. So it didn't interface with CQR log for me. And that's probably why Ted was talking about looking at the file. I actually wrote a little Python script that uh, does what alarm JT does inside of a terminal, <laughs> except for it looks up the, my, uh, my logbook to see if I've worked them before. So, uh, so I would, I, I could have that kind of built in, um, but not in alarm JT. It doesn't actually have the, uh, as far as I can tell, it doesn't look like that's been changed at all. Um, where it can interface with, uh, you know, X log or K log or, or uh, CQR log or something like that. It's probably something they should probably consider, uh, you know, getting some players involved with to kind of grow the app. So, uh, it can be a little bit more useful for people using already using a, a really, you know, a powerful logging application for, for their Linux machine. But, uh, that, that's how I solved my, my personal. <laughs> thing was to write a little little python script to to do all the hard work of uh querying the database so does jt alarm interface with cgr log did you i don't see where it does i don't see where it does at all okay so that's something that can definitely be improved for both of them going forward and if jt alarm actually comes out with a linux version then uh, that's something they could potentially add no, like a, Ted. Ted's doing the hardcore. He's grepping for the needed calls. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I should I should find my Python script and I'll share it. <laughs> yeah, you definitely should. This Python programming is awesome. Yeah, well, this isn't very awesome, but it worked. <laughs> uh, not all good is you know code is good code, but if it's functional code, that that helps. Yeah, so. it's still a good tool in the toolbox for uh, for working with the. Uh, the WSJTX uh, application for sure. All right. Very good. So check those out. The links to the web pages and associated source forge slash uh, GitHub slash whatever availability pages are, are for those, both of those applications, JT alert, the windows version and alarm JT, the Linux version will be in the show notes. So check those out. If you're uh, doing FT8 a lot and you'd be interested in some tools to help you out. And I wanted to take a super, super shallow dive into uh, NTP at this point because we're talking about things like uh, FT8 and the WSJTX modes. And it was brought up to me while I was doing my presentation over the weekend on Saturday that it's very important that your computer uses NTP when you're dealing with these particular modes. They're very, very time sensitive and you can uh, discover that if you fire up WSJTX someday and your computer's clock isn't synced, um, that you're not hearing anything. So, uh, even though you are hearing things, it just doesn't know how to decode properly because of the time sensitivity. So I just wanted to put in here uh, a couple of links to information about NTP, the network time protocol, and make sure that if you're going to be using these modes, especially the weak signal modes or anything that's time dependent, that you have NTP installed on your machine. You should probably have it installed on your machine anyway um, because it keeps logs and sync and other information that's useful um, coordinated because some intrusion detection systems, some firewall managers, um, like our syslog, anything that uses remote connections can actually be thrown off um, if your clock is not properly synchronized. So on a Debian system, it's as simple as doing an app install NTP. And the defaults, once you have NTP installed, are generally all you need in a desktop installation scenario. You could go whole hog and change permissions and change the 
the stratums of the servers you're connected to and all the things like that. But generally speaking, if you just install the package, uh, you'll be perfectly fine. Uh, if you want to see the status of your NTP on your machine, you just type the command NTPQ. And once you get the NTP prompt, you just type peers. And if you see peers show up in the list and they have a bunch of information to the right that's not a bunch of zeros, that means that your computer is working properly and its time is correctly synced. Now, it may take a few seconds for it to sync initially if the clock is really far off. Um, but after that, it will be kept in sync due to the NTP protocol. So um, it was actually redundant. The NT protocol. <laughs> uh, so anyway... Uh, just make sure that if you're running a system and you want to do amateur radio, or if basically if you have a computer on the internet that uses any kind of uh, security technology or basically interfaces with logging, ham radio applications or whatnot, you should definitely use NTP. Uh, and like I said, just make sure the NTP client is running on your machine. You may, you may have to make sure that it's not firewalled in some way. Uh, NTP uses uh, TCP and UDP packets to communicate on port 123. Uh, so just make sure it's available running and that your clock is synced. That's all I wanted to say about that. Cool. <laughs> See, that's why we call it a shallow dive. Anyway, uh, additional information about NTP will be in the show notes. So that, I think, brings us down to just about the end. We're going to do our social media roundup here in a second, but we'll check the chat room real quick before we move on our way and see if uh, anyone else has anything to say. Looks like there's a little chat in there about NTP or crony. <laughs> Old crony. Not sure what that's in reference to. But. <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't either. So, all right. I think that takes us down to the end of, uh, or nearly to the end of episode number 277. We should probably mention the folks who are in the chat room. Uh, tonight we have Don, KB2YSI, another Don, KC9ZMY, Ted, WA0EIR, and a new person, Dave, KC3LZY, whose name is going to show up here again because... He's recently become a supporter of our program. So thanks, Dave. Okay. All right. So Cheryl's going to read the social media roundup, and then we're going to head on out the door, I guess. All right. All right. So so for this time, for our Patreons, we have Randolph Smith, David Jaquay, Doug Rudder, Stephen Harp, Andy Webster, Pete Caffrey, Cubicle Nate, Darren King, Donald Gover, John Spriggs, Jonas Rulo, Paul Griffith, Robert Pitts, Samuel Vines, Steve Metcalf, Steve Sainer, and William Heckelman. For subscriptions, we have Fred Cole, Randolph Smith, Kevin Ivey, Phil Collins, Tony Coberly, James Lewis, Jeff Zimmerman, Steve Hepler, Michael Jopling, Todd Bowers, Thor Wiegman, Charlie Brown, Wayne Carpenter, Bill Piotr, Darren King, Dylan Angle, Alan Wilson, John Clark, Robert Halliday, Brian Smith, Johnny Kinsey, Ronald Ike, Robert Yerke, Michael Connolly, and Jeremy Hall. For Facebook, we had Ron Smith, Fred Cole, Liam Burke, and Doug Howard join us. On Twitter, we have at Alan underscore D underscore more, at small underscore IT, at Poltergeist, at blue underscore SK1ES, at Kudzuakura, at KC4GFW. Uh, at JD Etke and at JP7QQL. On YouTube, we had Dennis, uh, Ozusik, I'm going to guess. And on merchandise sales, Paul Griffith. All right. Very good. And in the chat room, I see they're talking about the crony thing, uh, or cron I, cron Y, whatever. 
Uh, it's apparently just another implementation of an NTP client server stack um, that has a graphical user interface, I'm guessing. I'm looking at the, uh, well, maybe not. <laughs> uh, but apparently it's another way to synchronize time on your system. I presume it uses the standard protocols and can operate in place of just the standard NTP client server configuration. So there you go. Another way to run network time protocol, if you so choose. A link to that will be in the show notes as well, um, as soon as I cut and paste it there. <clears throat> yeah, I was about to say, Don, Don was just saying, Crony might be the default with Fedora now. When I was reading the instructions, uh, you know, of course, they're pointing to a Fedora server <laughs> for their time sync. It's like, oh, okay. Fedora pool, fedora.pool.ntp. That worked. Yeah. All right. Very good. We have made it to the end of episode number 277. So I guess we will say thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the program. If you listen to it live and otherwise, thank you for downloading and listening to it. Whenever you get the chance, we truly appreciate that. And don't forget about the Hamvention 2019 Fund. And with that, we're just going to wrap it up and walk on out of here. So this has been episode number 277 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD73. Thank you for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info. You can support the program by visiting the LHS Patreon page of patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or using the contribute link on the website. Get in touch via social media. The show has a presence on Google+, Facebook, Twitter, Discord and YouTube. Or you can drop an email to info at lhspodcast.info or record a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the IRC channel, LHS Podcast, on the Freenode IRC network. Also visit the online merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable LHS merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a Linux convention or ham fest. Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info or visit the website for details. The podcast is recorded live every Monday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Connect to the stream at stream.blacksparrowmedia.net colon 8008-LHS-LIVE. Until next time, over and out.
Linux in the Ham Shack in the Linux in the Ham Shack logo or released under a Creative Commons Attribute Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.